Hello and welcome to the Cood Street Podcast, a semi-weekly discursive semi-coherent ramble through the nooks and crannies of science fiction and fantasy with regular host Gary K. Wolf and me, Jonathan Strahan. This week we emerge from the darkness to chat with longtime friend of the podcast, Alistair Reynolds, who we last spoke to in Reno, Nevada five years ago as Blue Remembered Earth appeared, about a new short story collection, a recent collaboration, an exciting new novel, Revenger, and no doubt much more. And yes, here to satisfy Gary, it does mean that you're in the Gershwin Room, high above the Creed Street Motel 6, for another recording of the multiple Hugo Award-dominated Creed Street Podcast! And we're off again. And and thank you for for making time for us, Al. This is the first time you've been on the podcast. We decided in six or seven years, I guess. Yeah, but I've, I've got it easy. I mean, I'm sort of in the middle of your two time zones, aren't I? I mean, and it's sort of like well, nice, civilized time in the afternoon for me. I mean. Well, you know, but you're both in the same hemisphere, and, and, and that's enough. I mean, and still, it, it, it's well worth it to get a chance to chat because it's not as though, given this, the world we live in, that we get to see each other physically that that often. So it's great to have a chance to just talk and catch up and hear what's happening in everybody's sort of world, science fiction, and, and what's sort of of interest. Very true, yes, yeah. And I have to say, you've been kind of busy since we talked to you last. Yeah, I mean, particularly the last, I would say the last year or two has been very busy. Um, I'm, I like being busy, actually. I probably overcommit on some projects, as, as you will well know, Jonathan. Um, I, I, I say yes to things, thinking, oh, you know, um, oh, a year from now, it'll be, I'll be, you know, blissfully... <laughs> that won't be that deadline won't be a problem at all, and then suddenly you realise you've committed to sort of twenty things uh, for that summer. Um, but yeah, I, I'm I'm happy to be busy up to a certain point, and then then it becomes a bit more fraught. But yeah, yeah, it's been an interesting few years. <laughs> well, I mean, take take us back because I mean, last time we spoke, Blue Remembered Earth was just out. Everybody had been talking about the big deal with Golans, and you were talking about you know the three novels that would become the Poseidon's Children saga how did all that work out for you are you happy looking back at on, on the books as they as they came out uh, broadly yes um i mean the whole thing didn't plan out exactly as i would have hoped i think it, the, the first thing is that it took longer um for various reasons i think it was a sort of uh i don't know five or six years between the, well maybe not that long but it, it certainly took longer than i thought it would do to get the uh, trilogy done there were changes at Orion, you know, sort of um, a, lot, a lot of different reasons why we didn't keep the book a year time scale. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was broadly what I wanted to do. I, I had a sort of conception in mind when I, before I started writing it, sort of, the sort of shape of the trilogy. I sort of got more or less to, the, to that point by the, by the time I finished. But um, it, was, it was kind of exhausting as well, I suppose, to do three big books, you know, in the continuity of achieve some sense of closure at the end of the third one as well. Well, I was going to say, it would have to be uh, you know, exhausting, because I mean, you threw in a, what, a Doctor Who novel in there along the way, and then a whole batch yeah. of short fiction as well. Yeah, uh, the, the Doctor Who novel was actually it's kind of, um, I mean, that was a nice little light relief in a way, in, in the middle of um, the second book, I think. Um, so I took a break from the second book, wrote the Doctor Who novel, and then came back to the second book, and I think maybe um, because I've been away for it for sort of five months, but everything I'd written up to that point that sort of died on me was a bit horrible. So I had to mm. throw out a lot of material. It wasn't um, maybe it was better to find that out though, rather than rather than um, keep, keep working with the material as it was. 
Um, and yeah, and the short material. Well, I, I, if, if I get to the end of the year and I haven't written sort of three or four short stories, I, I, I sort of feel a bit cross with myself. So I, I like to try and get them out there um, at various lengths. And uh, it, for me, it's a way of keeping keep the longer stuff fresh. It's, you know, a change is as good as a rest. <laughs> and I always find that the direction I'm taking with short fiction, it kind of maybe hints at where I might go with a novel in a, you know, in a year or two's time. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Is there Gary? Well, the, um, uh, the thing that fascinates me about, uh, we, we want to talk, I suppose, a little bit about Medusa's Children. I should be honest, I've not, not Medusa's Children, the Medusa Chronicles. Uh, um, I don't want to get all those things mixed up in my head now. But I'm especially, uh, I, I, I did um, get a chance to read Revenger, which is about the most appropriate title I've seen for a novel of, 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 of that sort. And um, I guess to, to get into that a little bit, there are two things that struck, oh, three things, okay, four or five things that struck me. <laughs> what have the Romans ever done for us? <laughs> uh, well, one, one, one which is, since I've not seen a physical copy of the book and I don't know anything about the marketing, uh, is that it does have a teenage girl as its protagonist. So I've already seen some people speculating online as to whether or not this is being presented as a young adult novel whether there may be a little bit too much violence for young adult novels. And, but then violence in young adult novels is pretty commonplace these days, so it could go either way. What is it? Yeah, I, I think that they're all fair questions. Um, I mean, my sort of slightly um, uh, cowardly sort of take on it, with that, you know, is, uh, it, it's, not, it's not a YA novel as such, but it's kind of YA approachable. Um, so I wanted to write... A book that felt as readable to me, um, would have felt as readable to me at, say, 16 as, as I felt when I first read, say, Nova, um, uh-huh. which was, uh, no, no one would call Nova a young adult science fiction novel, but it does have a young adult protagonist. True. And um, the kind of whole universe packed into 200 pages and it's very, um, you know, colorful and fast paced and, and exciting and it's got lots of ideas crammed into it. Um, and I kind of felt that that was the sort of template I was going through, along with Treasure Island, which I suppose is kind of on the cusp of being, um, I mean, adults still read Treasure Island, don't they? I mean, I, yeah. I, I read it for the first time a few years ago, and I didn't feel I was reading something that was sort of, um, you know, too, too, too simplistic for my tastes. But, um, yes, yeah. yeah, so I'm being very sort of cagey about it. I'm saying it's, it's a book with a, young, with a young adult protagonist, and it's young adult approachable, but it's not, I don't think it's been marketed as a YA novel. And as you say, it does, you know, there is some violence in there. Do you have a feel um, for what the actual difference is anyway? I mean, I've heard YA people saying that science fiction people, a lot of them don't really get YA anyway. So what would make Revenger YA in your mind? I don't know. I mean, the, the spur for me for writing that book was, um, among other things, I've read uh, the first volume of Joe Abercrombie's, um, is it, the, the, the first book is called Half a King. I forget yes. what the overarching title yeah. of the trilogy. That's a, that's a, a, a ostensibly a YA fantasy novel, but it was recommended to me as, as just read it because it's a really good read. It's really fast and it's really well paced and it's got some excellent characters in it and it's sort of um, you know it's just a, an, an unabashedly fun read. And that's exactly what I what I got out of it. I thought it was a very good book and I thought I'd love to write something a sort of science fictional equivalent to that. Um, with basically just the same pace and the same sort of um, sense of excitement. So that that was the main motivator for me, rather than writing a YA novel as such. It was just a sort of take, uh, 
take Joe's approach, if you like, and just sort of bend it a bit towards more towards science fiction. And is that basically taking the kind of book you might have written anyway, stripping it back to a to a if you like a linear plot, and giving it a, a younger protagonist? Uh, yeah, I mean, all I ever do is write the, the the books I'm capable of writing, and I did exactly that with the Doctor Who novel. I mean, there was mm. a fairly um, there was there was a brief for the Doctor Who novel, which was um, you know they have a set of things you can and can't do within a within a uh, a Doctor Who book for the BBC, like you can't you can't have someone point a firearm at another character in the book um, because they don't want that sort of action to be imitated. It's okay to point a uh, you know a, a Dalek weapon or something like that, but not a firearm. And I got to a point in the novel, I thought, well, I can't I can't really do this scene unless someone just holds a holds a sort of um, an automatic against another character's head. So I wrote it anyway, and <laughs> they just published it. Yeah. So my, my approach is to just just write the damn book. And then, you know, you can kind of worry about the fine-tuning for a market in, at, at the editorial stage. And that's exactly what we did with, with, with Ender. Um, I mean, I, as you know, Jonathan, I've done a couple of um, short stories for your um, yeah. anthologies, sort of um, young adult uh, titles. But again, my approach was pretty much just to write whatever itch I had to scratch in fictional terms at that point would be that story. I think, I think you're also correct when you mentioned something like Nova which clearly isn't a young adult novel, but if you go back to classic science fiction of the 60s and, and earlier, there are so many novels and stories with young protagonists in them that uh, they could probably be reconfigured as young adult today, and a great many of us, when we began reading science fiction, were young adults, except we didn't have a category, then we thought science fiction was just science fiction. Exactly, and there was no young adult category as such when I started reading science fiction. And I, I mean, I was just thinking this morning about *The City in the Stars*, which has, uh, you know, Alvin, I think is, um, although sort of post-human civilization, isn't it, where everyone lives to be thousands of years old? But he sort of functions as a as a as, a, as an adolescent, I think, in the terms right. of that novel. Um, but we don't really think of that as a YA novel; we just think of it as a sort of mid-period Clark novel. Mm. So the terms of reference have shifted a bit, I think, over the years. Let me ask you this. I mean, Gary touched on it as well. I mean, you're, when you, when I think about the the Joe Abercrombie series you talk about, from my money, the best book in that series is the middle book. Uh, it has the you know the strong female protagonist. What brought you with Revenger to be telling a novel from the perspective of a teenage girl? I I don't um, always know. You know, I find it very hard to articulate what the, the sort of artistic choices that go into a, a, a chosen character, and often it's just that's just what happens. Um, and I suppose I, I do tend to look, to gravitate towards female viewpoint characters anyway. Um, if you look at you know all my books, there's, there's probably more than half of them have have um, you know viewpoint characters of female. Mm. So maybe it's just the sort of default assumption, and it just felt like my stuff with it. I think. Okay. But it certainly—it wasn't a sort of really con deep considered decision. You know, there wasn't a lot of thinking behind it. It was just, uh, you know, whatever felt right was, was right. <laughs> and, and, and did you find that it was a voice you had to really work to get a, a feel for? I think because I'd read, I read Treasure Island very sort of analytically. I wanted um, to, to sort of absorb it and internalize that sort of nautical swashbuckling voice of the character. 
Um, so that's, I mean, I, and I read a lot of that stuff anyway. I really enjoy sort of nautical fiction and sort of um, 19th century fiction. And I was also reading um, Three Musketeers as well, just just sort of saturating myself in a lot of 19th century fiction. So that sort of came out, that would have come out anyway, you know, it was sort of, um, that's just the way, where my head was when I started writing that book. But, um, yeah, the voice, I mean, I, I think I wanted to write a book that was definitely more character-driven than anything I'd done before. And I also wanted the voice to be quite a strong component of the book. So, yeah. I mean, if you go back... Excuse me, fascinating. Oh, go on, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, sorry, Gary, go ahead. I was going to say, I think it's fascinated me the way her her voice changes, because in addition to being the, um, well, classic romantic avenge melodrama on the one hand, it's a coming-of-age story, and her... Her voice actually changes from being a bookish teenage girl at the beginning to saying things like luck's a rum thing and sounding like Long John Silver in the second half of the book. Yeah, it's very, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's very deliberate because she is actually the, um, she's not only the protagonist, she's also the author of the tale as well. Oh, yeah. So there's a a framing setup where she's actually the words you are reading are is actually her personal account. So at the start of the narrative, although it's it's being written in the future, if you like, she's recounting herself when she's, as you say, this bookish, um, rather cloistered young girl who's from a quite quite nice background and certainly doesn't talk like a salty sea dog. <laughs> but, but we wanted that graduation in her voice to become quite you know an interesting part of the telling if you like so i think mm -hmm. it hopefully it you, you see the progression not only in the way she talks in the um in, in the dialogue but also in the way that she sort of adjusts her narrative telling throughout throughout the, the, the book to sort of reflect that change in her own nature right does that make sense no that's 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 what i was it's always nice to hear the author say that i was sort of got getting what I was supposed to be getting. Um, the other thing that's interesting, uh, there are a lot of things interesting. You mentioned uh, going back to uh, Dumas and, uh, and, and Stevenson, which is very visible. It's enormously readable at that level. But it's also compressed. It, it seems to me there, there are two ways that you more or less limited the scope, not uh, one, one in terms of astronomical scope, which I want to get to in a minute, but the other, if you go back, as I'm sure you did, and, and look at, uh, at Alexander Dumas and Victor Hugo, uh, classic revenge stories, those stories come into the thousand pages each. Most people don't remember that about the Count of Monte Cristo. So this is a very condensed revenge story that doesn't play out over decades, even though it is, easily could have. Yes, but... The, I mean, the, the, one of the big sort of um, impulses for me was, was generally speaking to write shorter books. And I, I wrote, the, the breakthrough for me was the Doctor Who novel, because that was just, it was about 110,000 words. I think it was supposed to come in at about 90, but it, it was a little bit over in the end. But that was still quite a bit shorter than anything I'd done before. Um, and the, you know, I think... Um, House of Sons was a bit a bit less than two hundred thousand words. Then Terminal World was about one hundred eighty, mm -hmm. and Blue Metal was about one hundred eighty. But the, those the, the books of that trilogy did start creeping back up again. And um, Poseidon's Wake is more it, it's something like two hundred twenty thousand words. And I, I thought you know I really want to put the brakes on that trend before it 
gets out of control again and I'm writing sort of 300,000 word novels. So I don't want to do that. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a different, you know, it's part of a longer term strategy of get, you know, becoming more economical as a writer. Uh, and, you know, it's a, Revenger is a 140,000 word novel, which would not be considered short by any sort of sensible standards, would it? You know, I mean, you know, in the old days, a novel was 70,000 words, 75,000 exactly. words. Well, it's still quite a chunky piece of work, but it is definitely more economical than, um, than some of my other books. And yes, as you say, um, some of those classic revenge stories are real doorstoppers, aren't they? I mean, um, oh, really? yeah, 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 but then the, the other books that tomorrow are even bigger, the ones that almost no one ever mm. reads. <laughs> mm -hmm. so, yeah. Well, actually, the other novel, the other novel that came to mind while I was reading this was The Star's My Destination, which is, right. of course, also The Count of Monte Cristo, so. Yeah, indeed. I read that long enough ago that it wasn't it wasn't at the forefront of my mind when I was writing with Andy, but it might you know there might be something of it in there now you mention it. Mm -hmm. Let me ask what what is the enduring attraction for someone looking at a space adventure or a space opera or whatever you want to call it of maritime fiction? I mean, this is just as a lot of space opera is a maritime story. It's the Aubrey and Matterin kind of a thing. It's like out to into swashbuckling space to achievable places that are strange and different. Do you think we'll ever escape that kind of sea adventure background to these stories? Uh, for me, it just comes out of a pure unadulterated enthusiasm for nautical fiction. And it started... It was about 15 years ago, we went on holiday, we went, we went to the Bahamas and we had sort of two weeks on a tropical island, it was bliss, but there was nothing to do, literally nothing to do, there was no internet, there was no television, so all we did was pack lots and lots of books, and we packed, I think, about 20 paperbacks each, and in sheer desperation, I think, well, if I get through those 19, I'd, you know, I'd better pack another one, so I packed an omnibus edition of um, C.S. Forrester's Hornblower books, thinking that would be the most you know, I won't enjoy it, but it's there as a sort of backup. Um, <laughs> so finally, I got, I got, you know, I read all the other books, and I got to the Hornblower. I started it skeptically, thinking this is going to be really boring. And within a chapter or two, bloody hell, this is quite, this is quite good. And then it was actually, this is really good. This is really tasty <laughs> stuff. And I became a sort of um, overnight fan of Forrester. And then I started reading, um, yeah, the old Matterin books as well. I basically just couldn't get my hands on enough multiple. Napoleonic era stuff, I suppose, is, is, is what was fighting. Um, mm. I've, I've kind of dipped in and out of that ever since. I, I thought I found it a very interesting period, um, you know, you know, in historical terms. But I just really enjoy the fiction. And I think, I mean, Forrester for me is a very underrated writer, a, a really, um, you know, a, a real efficient writer of, of readable quality adventure fiction. Uh, so I, I think I've absorbed a lot of Forrester, but Hopefully, some of that, some of, some of his virtues might might come out. I, I, I would hope. Um, but for me, yeah. So I, I don't know why. Why? Why is the, what's the enjoying appeal of that stuff? I don't know. Um, all I all I wanted to do was sort of rejig the mechanics of a space opera so that you could have a world that felt about as big as it did in the, sort of the age of sort of fighting sail, yeah. where you know worlds are sort of weeks or months apart rather than years or centuries. Were you tempted so, to set the book in that time? Oh, well, you know, it did actually do a historical novel. Yeah. No, no, no. I I, I had um, a set of notes, and this is another thing, a, a few years ago I, I started cooking up one of these 
stupid, ambitious ideas that was never going to come to anything. It was that I was going to write maybe half a dozen short stories in an, in an in interconnected setting and then write them and polish them and get all the connections between them and, and only then start selling them. And I, I wanted um, these stories were all going to be set in a sort of uh, uh, the future of our solar system, where our solar system is going to be dismantled and turned into a sort of giant Dyson swarm of, of little worlds. So I had all the background notes, but I never did anything with it. Uh, and when I was sort of turning my thoughts to what the next book was going to be, you know, I had that sort of a few weeks of panic where I don't have any ideas. And then I sort of opened that file, I said, oh, that is all. Oh, oh, good, there's all these notes here for, uh, for an entire universe, or at least an entire future solar system. So I, you know, I was always going to keep the space setting. I mean, for me, that's, I, you know, I do tend to, you know, I have a, I'm, I'm never going to get bored with, with, with space, I don't think, as a, as a, as a sort of primary well, setting. We've raised yeah. the, um, um, well, that raises the issue of the setting, which is, which is something else that fascinates me, because this congregation you have, as you mentioned, for the purposes of writing a pirate story, you pretty much have to have worlds within sailing distance of, of one another. And that struck me as being something similar to a topic we've talked about before on the podcast, and maybe I've talked about with you as well, Al. That is the sort of movement over the last couple of decades to set uh, space operas within the solar system and forgo a lot of the interstellar travel. And it, um, it seems to me, and, and there, there are arguments made that we really are going to be stuck with the solar system, that interstellar travel is not going to work, that you have Stan Robinson's novel Aurora arguing that. Um, but the other thing that struck me about, about the congregation of worlds is that they need to be reasonably close to each other. There's no, they're clearly in a single solar system. And it just, for some reason, had never occurred to me before, possibly being spoiled by reading space operas, that the solar system is really enormous. It's really huge, and you could probably squeeze thousands and thousands of worlds into it without uh, making it look crowded. And it, it yeah. just struck me as an odd thing that halfway through the novel, I thought, you don't really need intergalactic travel to have thousands of worlds. There's plenty of room for them. Is that somewhere in the back of your mind in setting up this uh, this sort of world that you yeah, have? Yeah. I think it was um, there was a point in the um, in, in the collaborative novel I did with Steve Baxter, um, the user Chronicles, where we were writing about um, the very edge of the solar system, sort of little um, trans-Neptunian. Um, mm -hmm. You know, dwarf planets and things like that. And, you know, I started really thinking about the, the scales involved and how, how far apart these little specks of ice are from each other. And it's just, the solar system is just enormous. It's just really mind-blowingly huge. And, and as you say, I think we sometimes lose track of that in science fiction. We tend to think of the solar system as being very parochial and next door. But there is a yeah. tremendous amount of room. You know, there's a, there's a colossal amount of room in the solar system. And there's lots of matter as well. You know, if you start sort of dismantling Jupiter, you can make lots and lots and lots of little planets. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, so the other impulse for doing it that way was just with, with with the larger books where you have sort of relativistic travel and you have solar systems that are sort of light years apart and you're trying to work out the mechanics of light travel time you know how long does it take the ships to get from A to B how long does it take signals to get from A to B um, you know all that stuff is, is sort of fun to do but it's kind of intricate and headachey and I thought wouldn't it be fun just do a book where it, we, we still we still respected the speed of light, but everything was just a few weeks apart, and that was 
that's all you needed to know. So that that was the sort of um, <laughs> the sort of impulse, if you like, behind the setting for Avenger. So, so sort of in a sense, the setting for Avenger is a far future where a space like our solar system, if not our solar system, in some future state, is fully populated in a really meaningful kind of a way. Yes, it's set at least, I mean, it's set 10 million years after they dismantled the solar system. So you can sort of imagine it's, you know, it's set probably at least 20 million years in the future. But the, the mere act of dismantling the solar system is so far in the past that it's almost sort of a sort of mythical thing that happened. And, um, yeah, so the notion is that, you know, you have this idea of the Dyson sphere where you, you, you shroud the sun to collect all its energy. One of the more pure ideas of that problem is the Dyson Swarm. So you just englobe the, the sun in lots and lots of little little bodies that trap as much energy as possible. And I thought, well, a natural sort of um, you know progression from that would be what if it's what if it just sort of falls into decay and um, you know no one's there to look after it, and you just end up with a sort of like huge cloud of, of rubble, if you like, where people people live on their individual bits. Um, but there's no real um, sort of central organisation keeping it all running. But that, I thought that'd be quite a fun setting for um, the sort of swashbuckling space opera. And I, I guess it's a little bit similar in sort of setting to the kind of thing that Carl Schrader did with Son of Sons and those kind of books. It is, it is, and I think there's. Um, let me get this right now. Um, it may have been Carl. There was another writer who sort of alluded to the, the Petty Prince. You know, the idea of the asteroid worlds and. Um, that's obviously an image that, that is played up a lot in, um, in Revenge. So yeah, the, you know, science fiction is, is full of ideas that, that are echoed and, and, and amplified, you know, book after book. And there's, there's nothing that's sort of strikingly original about it, I don't think. Do you have a sense when you've gone to the trouble of creating this, this world? And there, there are many implications in Revenge of, um, of, of further developments, more things we could find out about these various worlds and habitats and so forth and so on. And I know people are going to want to know if there are more um, novels in the series because you really have set it up so that we have a possibility. But I wonder if part of that is the amount of imaginative effort that goes into creating uh, essentially a, 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 a completely populated, but as you mentioned, a solar system now in ruins. Once you've gone to that much trouble of world building, do you really feel that you can leave it at one novel or two novels? It's, it's quite, in a way, there's something quite fun about creating a sort of densely imagined universe and then just sort of doing a mic drop on it, isn't it? Like, that's all you're getting. <laughs> yeah, there is something to be said for that. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't envisage the, the, the universe of Revenger isn't one I would return to uh, over and over again. I mean, there might be a, possibly another book in there. If, it, if the first one is well received, um, then yes, I've got ideas where I might take the story and possibly one after that, but I think that would be the absolute limit of it. Uh -huh. um, so it's, I mean, in a way, I think it's a sort of sleight of hand in a way that you try and give the impression to the reader that, that it's more densely thought out than it is. I always think it's like one of those sort of um, Wild West sort of film sets, you know, where the, the front of you look very detailed, and mm -hmm. you go out back and it's all plywood and, and you know, and, and duct tape. Uh, and, you know, the whole thing's going to fall apart if there's a breeze. So, I, you know, I think I, in common with a lot of SF writers, I've got a sort of toolkit of literal, I suppose, tricks and 
deception, if you like, that can give the impression that there's a more detailed Bible, if you like, or a world lurking behind the scenes. So I don't do a lot of world building. I just let it all sort of creep organically. Mm-hmm. When we spoke last time, you were at the beginning of your 10-book Golan Steel, which from the outside looked a little bit restrictive in the sense that it was 10 books. You were tied down for a long period of time. It was six years ago. How important listening to you talk about Revenger and how you come up with it is keeping the uh, the approach to writing a new novel fresh and fun and light and engaging rather than something you kind of have to do? Well, the, the moment it becomes a chore, it's, it's death, isn't it? I mean, yeah. we, we, all of us, however we engage with science fiction, whether we're, whether we're readers or writers, fans, whatever, we go into it because of a pure love of the form, a pure, a pure sort of unadulterated enthusiasm. And you want to, you want to hold on to that. I mean, I'm, I'm in a sort of commercial environment where there are deadlines and, you know, economic pressures on, on, on me as, uh, you know, as it is with any sort of, um, jobbing writer. But you try to hold on to the sort of basic <laughs> spark of enthusiasm and fun that pulled you into the genre in the first place. And I've, I mean, touch wood, I've managed to do that so far. I mean, I still, um, I still enjoy the, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I enjoy writing books, but I enjoy thinking about the next one even more. I mean, particularly when I'm sort of three quarters of the way through a book that, that I'm, that I'm working on. Mm. Then I start thinking, ooh, ooh, great, I can start another one soon and, and do something completely different. Well, I've got to say, you seem staggeringly fast. Don't take it the wrong way, but I I remember being in contact with you uh, earlier in the year, and I think uh, the Medusa Chronicles was barely finished, and you were talking about having Revenge out this year, and you hadn't started it yet at that point. I mean... Uh, Well, I'd love to say it was that fast, but no, I mean, Revenge was mostly written last year. Okay. Um, But, um, yeah, I mean, there was some editorial stuff done earlier in the year. But, I mean, I was fine... I, I like to write a lot. I like to be um, prolific. I'm probably on the cusp of being overproductive, um, but I think I'd probably take that over being underproductive, if you like. Um, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult one to walk. I mean, a lot of the um, sort of artists I, I I sort of admire are people who tend to be quite active and prolific. I mean, I'm just, yeah. you know I'm a big fan of Neil Young. You know, you, you you can't blink without a new Neil Young album coming out. And they're not. You know, they're not always sort of polished pieces of work but I enjoy the fact that he's energetic and um, always seems to have something to say and you never quite know where you know where, where the next Neil Young album is going to come from so I'm not saying I'm Neil Young <laughs> but I, you know I, generally speaking I'm happy to be busy and I and I kind of thrive on it do, do you find there's a moment where you realize that having written a book that you've done be it any one of the books in, in your 25-year career, long now career now, uh, that you feel you've really learnt something from, that you can look back and go, that's a, that's something that has changed my toolkit as a writer? Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't happen with every book. I think it's sort of, for me, it's about every five books, I feel, you know, there's a sort of step change, like a slight, I've, I've got a few more tools in the toolkit. Um, I don't always realise it when it happens. I felt... It was a bit of a breakthrough after I wrote House of Sons. I felt that was a book that sort of opened up some new sort of opportunities for me as a writer in terms of the things I could do on the page. And again, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to sort of put too much on it, but I think Revenger, I've sort of, hopefully I've brought some characters more to the fore than, than I have done before and sort of done a little bit more with voice. 
Um, so I'm hoping that might be the sort of step, you know, one, another little step change in my fiction, so that, you know, there'll be, um, you know, a slightly different quality to come after well, you, Yeah, uh, I, I'm curious, uh, since we've, uh, you, you, you talked about the kind of Potemkin village movie set props that, uh, that all science fiction writers use, and I, th I think you're absolutely right. I think that's part of classic science fiction. I think even Heinlein once said that you, you know, imply a much larger world than you describe. Given that, what was it like to move back to the arena of classic science fiction and, and deal with, you know, with a famous Arthur C. Clarke story, which in many ways is a very old-fashioned science fiction story, and, and, and you and, and Steve Baxter had to turn that into a contemporary novel in some way. So the thing that helped us was that we were both coming from a position of enthusiasm for that story, and I'd always loved it, and I'd always wondered what happened after the final final sentence, like what was the um, the slingshot that Clark sets up at the end of that book, was that that story? Sorry, it was very uh, mm. um, thought provoking to me. And I mentioned it to Steve in passing, and he, he just reread it, and it was sort of like the absolute. You know, I could not have mentioned it at a better time. Um, and he, he he also sort of found himself thinking along similar lines. So we, you know, it, it's from I think it's from 1971. Um, so in fact, in, if you look at the sort of like the, the sort of Clark's um, output is actually one of the more recent, uh, one of the more successful later stories in his career. Right. Um, yeah, it is dated in some respects, but the thing that really saved our bacon was that almost nothing in that book about Jupiter has been disproved in that story and so on. Because, we, you know, until now, I mean, there's a probe just all entered orbit around Jupiter, which is sort of taking uh, sort of unprecedented close ups of the atmosphere. But we were in a kind of window of opportunity because we thought, actually, we don't really know that much more about Jupiter than we did, did in 1971. So all of our, um, sort of science fictional speculation about the sort of conditions inside Jupiter, that all holds true. It's all, it's all still as plausible as it was, um, 45 years ago. In terms of the, the sort of, um, the other stuff in the book, sort of, uh, I keep pointing a book on the video, but, um, the, the, the story is very, it's very sort of analog, isn't it? It's very sort of pre-digital. Um, you know, it sort of feels like a, a product, product of its time. Um, so we decided rather than, we decided we'd run with that and we'd embed the entire novel in a sort of alternate timeline in which we just took everything that happened in um, um, Meeting the Medusa. We took as gospel. We said, you know, if, you know, if, if Clark doesn't mention digital systems, that's because there aren't digital systems in that timeline. So we cooked up a sort of rationale for that, why, why, the, why the whole novel is on a slightly different track. And that gives you some pros and some cons. So we, don't, we didn't have to um, you know, explain away the absence of the internet. But on the other hand, we could say, well, because they haven't done that stuff, they've actually done other things. You know, they've, they've been more active in terms of human space exploration, um, which again sort of fitted in with the timeline of Clark. And Steve, he created this sort of um, spreadsheet, which we emailed back and forth between us, which had all, all the facts we could glean about the world, Clark's world of sort of 2019, like what, what the world population, you know, what seems to be the superpower, that sort of thing. And just trying to really sort of ground ourselves in, in his imagined world and sort of take it at face value rather than fighting against it, you know, rather than trying to do sort of a, um, a bang up to date. Um, you know, 2016 post cyberpunk, post new weird uh, take on it. But let's just play fair with the world that Clark created. 
when we did our last podcast, we talked about um, Clark, actually. So I'm glad that Gary pulled us back to this because I wanted to ask. You talked a lot about, a lot about Clark and a lot about writing character and the kind of characters that he wrote. Did you find yourself learning anything anew, looking back at the story and then attempting to write into its future timeline? Steve and I both, I think we both try to immerse ourselves, not just in that story, but in a wide variety of Clark short stories, certainly for me. You know, um, I, I went back and I read a lot of the later space-based short fiction. Um, well, I've always had a pretty high appreciation of Clark anyway. I mean, I, I, I sort of take issue with some of the criticism against him. Uh, I think he's a better prose writer than, than is generally um, considered. I think if you, if you sort of put him up against Asimov, I think there's no comparison. Clark is simply a better prose writer. He's got a sort of um, um, classic meter to his prose, if you like, which, which is not something that can be neglected, you know. I think that can be slighted. I think it's uh, there are deep virtues to Clark's writing. I think because he probably was steeped in Wells and, and uh, Hardy and mm-hmm. Somerset Maugham, the writers that he grew up with. I think that sort of comes through his fiction. So I don't, you know, I always felt that I always had a very high opinion of Clark's work. Um, I don't think I don't think there was anything that was particularly modified for me in, in, in working through Medusa Chronicles. Um, I still came away with a high appreciation. I mean, for, for Steve and I, the, the the sort of acid test was how well we were going to work in, in collaborative terms. And I haven't really collaborated on a novel before. I've done a, a sort of novella or a long novelette with Liz Williams, which mm. we did a few years ago entirely via email, where we, we each wrote a thousand words and then sort of mailed it back and forth to us. It was sort of it was an interesting experiment. I don't know how successful it was. We, we sort of enjoyed it as, a, as an exercise. Um, but the Clark book, we, we, we couldn't take... Um, you know, a sort of piecemeal approach to it. We had to be quite sort of military, if you like, about the whole sort of planning of the thing, otherwise it just wasn't going to happen. Um, and what what worked was that Steve had already been an active collaborator. He, he worked with, um, makes him sound like a war criminal, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but he, you know, he'd, he'd, worked, he'd worked with Terry Pratchett, and he'd also, critically, he'd worked with Clark, um, when Clark was still alive. So I thought, you know, Steve's going to know the ropes. Steve's going to be the one who's going to sort of keep this... Um, Keep this on the tracks and keep, keep the whole thing working. And indeed, that that was how it how it sort of worked out. That Steve was the you know he really understands the mechanics of a of, a, of an efficient collaboration. I was going to bring up the issue of Clark also because he's he seems to be um, a writer who, who who sets up mysteries and, and and leaves them and then and then sometimes doesn't leave them again. In other words, Clark probably has more sequels and collaborations by other hands than any other major writer, because he was working with Gentry Lee early in his career. Uh, Benford uh, did uh, Beyond the Fall of Night, I think it was. Uh, And there's a sense in a lot of Clark's fiction that there is this unexplored aspect to the plot, unexplored questions. And I think that is something that every reader comes away from Clark wanting to know. But I think there's a danger in, in, in this also, which is that um, when you finish, let's say, Rendezvous with Rama, and you have basically the Rama cylinder simply floating on, and we don't know what happened. And then by the time you get two or three sequels, I think the last ones may have been written simply by Gentry Lee, I learned way more about Rama than I ever wanted to know, and the mystery seemed to be gone. 
it's it's absolutely the case, and I think Clark himself fell prey to that. We, you know, we have the um, you know the central image of two thousand and one is the black monolith, about which we know exactly. almost nothing, know very little. And then by the time we've read whatever it is, two thousand sixty-one or three thousand sixty-one, you know, Clark himself was describing it as a sort of um, you know an, an alien Swiss Army knife. <laughs> and yeah. he, he himself has sort of stripped, stripped whatever mystery was, was there is gone. And I absolutely, um, you know, I endorse your, your point of view. It, 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 there's a great danger and inherent risk in um, supplying the answers that readers feel they want, I suppose. And um, again, you know, Fred Paul did it with the, you know, he over-explained the Nietzsche, didn't he, and, and the gateway. Right. And I, I, I absolutely get the dangers in that. And also the the risk in saying that this is the, this is the categorical answer. You know, we are we are we are giving you the official sequel here. Um, so Steve and I, I think that our approach was um, that this isn't this isn't us saying this is what happens to Howard Falcon. This is us saying this is what we think would be fun if it happened to Howard Falcon. It's it's our sort of um, playful take on you know the, the the dot dot dots at the end of the Clark story where he sort of implies something that you don't see on the page. But I get it absolutely that um, mm. you know you can you can go so far and then you've gone you've gone too far and you've given given away too much and over-explained things and um, in a way undermined the, the the initial text to some degree. I've never read actually read the um, Rama sequence. I've only ever read one with the Rama, which is probably uh, probably a wise thing, I suspect. It's a very yeah, it is a wise thing because I think that ellipsis that you mentioned is is an important part of of, of any. Effective science. I mean, there's, there's certainly an ellipsis in in, uh, in Revenge. There are a lot of unanswered questions about aspects of the world, and I think there's a tension in science fiction uh, between the reader wanting explanations. The, I, the Asimov was also another wonderful over-explainer. By the time he had united the Foundation and the robots and things, he would he had the world explained to the point where it was frankly not interesting anymore. Um, <laughs> So, so you want that unknown factor because I think those of us who are science fiction readers want to be able to fill in some of the gaps with our own imagination. Yeah, absolutely. And if, if you're a writer, um, you, you'll be in the position you, you you may have been lucky enough to write something that strikes a chord with some readers, uh, and they they want more. They want. Can you go back and tell us? You know, the, can you do the prehistory of this planet, or tell us what happens after this thing. And it's incredibly tempting and in a way flattering as well because there's that, you know, assumption of reader interest. But every time you do that, you're, you know, you're running the risk of chipping away a little bit at what, what was exciting and mysterious about the property mm-hmm. in the first place. So it's a danger. I absolutely agree. What is it you think that makes Clark particularly amenable to our collaborators, to people continuing his stories? I mean, as we've been saying, there have been so many of them. Is there something that at least creates the uh, the feeling that the prose, I suppose, I mean, you're saying the quality of the prose is there, but there's a, that feeling of transparency that gives you an idea that it could be continued by other hands? I suppose it is. It's also, I don't think he, he, he never got that, Asimovian stage of sort of tying everything together, and that, had he done that, had he started, I don't, think he, I don't think he ever had any intention of doing so, but had he gone down that road of sort of trying to cross-knit the universe of 2001 mm. with the universe of Rama and Terrence mm. Heart and all that, you know, it, 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 you know, I think that would have, you know, undermined and self, you know, self-defeated the whole enterprise and probably would have made it less practical. 
But the way that, you know, you know, I look, look at Clark's work in a very sort of um, amateurish sense, I see lots of lots of different invented worlds, lots of different invented histories. There's there's common assumptions between them, but there's lots of in, lots of distinct and interesting invented properties where you can sort of imagine sort of fruitfully spinning off from some of the ideas Clark had. I don't I don't imagine Clark's alone in that. I mean, my problem is that I, Clark is the first the first writer of both science fiction I ever encountered. So I have a very hard time imagining science fiction, you know, a, a science fiction in which Clark isn't sort of centermost. It's quite hard for me to, to sort of take a step away from Clark and see him as just another science fiction writer. Um, I, I, I can understand that. I, I began reading uh, Clark, I suppose, with the short stories. It's hard to remember. But I remember the early collections, the Valentine collections of short stories here in the States were called Reach for Tomorrow and Expedition to Earth and later Tales from the White Heart. And they were never very well formed as short stories, but everyone had a specific science fiction idea in it, which he was throwing at us like candy, I suppose. And it always struck me that a Clark short story was itself a slingshot. It was simply a way of... Um, of, um, of Allowing our imaginations to fill fill in the blanks, um, and uh, so sometimes they were trivial ideas. Sometimes they were wonderful ideas. Uh, obviously, sometimes they were stories like the Sentinel that implied far more than the, the, than, than the story could say. But I, I, I tend to agree. I, I think very few other science fiction story writers were so um, bound up in the idea of of giving us one really provocative idea per story, and then basically ending the story and going on to something else. Yeah, there's, there's one that, um, you know, he did a whole slew of stories about sort of the, the early days of building space stations. I think they were probably written yeah. in the sort of 1940s, early 50s. Island there's one, sky. Yeah, there's, there's a guy, a story where there's a, uh, an astronaut has to take a sort of rocket sled between two space stations for some reason. If he's, He's sort of way off on his own, um, orbiting the Earth. He's, he's thousands of miles from sort of any other human being. And this sort of alien spacecraft just sort of flashes by. He, he just he just catches <laughs> a glimpse of it. It comes and it goes. And that that's the story. It's just there's nothing more to it than just this sort of epiphany where the guy realizes he's just seen an alien yeah. spaceship. Right. And it you know, it must have struck quite a quite a chord with me because I'm, I still remember it sort of forty years on. But um, it sort of leaves, you know, it leaves an <laughs> almost infinite number of questions that open at the end of that story. Um, will the ship come back? Who built it? Why? What, you know, what was its purpose? But Clark doesn't, he, he isn't, in, at that point, he isn't interested in furnishing those answers. He just wants to leave us with that sort of um, resonant image. Right? To me, that, those stories felt very strongly. Yeah. How important was it for you that a new reader coming to Medusa Chronicles would read a meeting with Medusa? Well, we had we had some uh, I won't say difficulties, but it was unclear to us until very late in the production stage whether we would be able to include the original story in the book. And Steve and I were kind we were kind of motivated to put the story in the book. We wanted to put it either as a, either at the start or at the end as a sort of um, um, you know bonus material, if you like, so that someone who hadn't read the original one would, would have it there on hand. But we weren't able to get permission. Um, so we, you know, right almost until the, the you know, the, the point where the whole thing had to go into, um, typesetting, we had two, two openings, one where it was more or less taken for granted that the reader had read the story, and then the other one where we had to provide some, uh, 
you know, some material so that the reader was up to speed. So we, we had to work with that as an issue. I mean, I, I don't think it's a story that's particularly well known outside of sort of science fiction circles. Um, I don't, I don't think it's one that's got, I mean, I'm, I'm very fond of it, but I don't think it's one that's really picked up, um, any sort of wide attraction in, in, you know, outside of, um, pretty well read science fiction circles, even though it was in Fable and one, I think it was the Cuba, didn't it? 71 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Do you get a sense that, uh, you, since you, you, you've mentioned Clark, who clearly comes out of a tradition that, uh, that includes Stapleton and certainly includes Wells, and, and, and you certainly describe Steve Baxter as a Wellsian, and does that give you a different approach? Do you believe that there's generally a different approach among British writers with that ancestry uh, compared to uh, American writers whose ancestry is more like Heinlein and Asimov and Van Vogt? It's a, it's a very hard one to, to answer because I'm, I I only know what I grew up with, and I'd say Clark was sort of central to my early reading, and Heinlein wasn't. And there wasn't sort of any ideological reason for that. I think it was just the books that they happened to have in the school library. I don't think there was anything more sort of, you know, intentional than that. And they did have sort of Philip K. Dick and um, Sturgeon, but they had a hell of a lot of Clark and, and also a lot of Asimov as well. So that's where I sort of kind of read a lot of Asimov for the first time. But I just don't remember encountering Heinlein. I just don't remember seeing his books. And I think, I mean, I was well into my late teens, or mid-teens, mid before I read Starship Troopers. Um, a friend lent me a copy. And then I read sort of um, Friday, which had just come out. So that that was sort of my point of entry into Heinlein. And then I sort of read, went back and read Green Hills of Earth and some of the other books. But um, I didn't have that central foundation, if you like. I didn't, I didn't grow up with Heinlein as a sort of dominant figure in science fiction, but I think a lot of American writers did. I think and so. I think we're seeing, you know, um, I mean, I, I think there are, you know, there are obvious virtues to Heinlein's work. Um, you know, that, you know, it's not, it's not simply, you know, a clear-cut case that Heinlein bad, Clark good, or anything so simplistic. Um, it's just that, for one reason or another, for me at least, Heinlein wasn't wasn't there as that sort of um, dominant, you know, paternalistic figure in science fiction. But he was in American circles. I wonder if we're sort of seeing the seeing the sort of um, you know is that still playing out in some of the schisms that are in science fiction at the moment, where you have you know sort of military SF, a lot of a lot of the military SF writers are sort of indebted to Heinlein. Are we still seeing the sort of playing out of that generational thing? I certainly think you can read some things into the current day where you look at the old big four and you can see echoes of them still sort of moving through the pool, as it were. I mean, you can see, you know, the, the post Heinlein that you're talking about. You can see the post Clark in the, in the UK particularly. Uh, uh, you can see the post Bradbury very much. Less yeah. so maybe with the post Pole, but it may just be that I haven't really thought it through enough. But, you know, listening to you say it, I mean, it's like, yes, I think, that's somewhere in there. There are also, I think, a few stories we tell ourselves about what those people writing at that time were trying to do. You know, this idea of writing just a jolly good yarn or whatever else it might have been, which under undermines the actual complexity and challenge that these people were putting into the work at the time, the way they were read, uh, and then the way we've tended to, to some degree, copy them le later on. I don't think, for, for, say, in Heinlein's case, the quest for the you know the Heinlein juvenile 
has been a productive or a valuable thing particularly. I think you know that was something that he did well and should have been allowed to pass into the, the mists of time. Yes, you've seen that many, many attempts by people to sort of emulate the um, you know the, Hein, the, the classic temper of the Heinlein juvenile, and that we're essentially trying to write something that would have worked well in a sort of 1940s or 50s context, and, and thinking it's going to hold some interest in sort of the 21st century. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. But I mean, whatever you think about Heinlein, is he's still part of the conversation because people will read, say, John Scalzi, and they'll situate John's books in. So some, you know, you can see their relationship to the Heinlein tradition, whether they're in argument with it or or for it. But they, you know, you can you can see the lineage quite clearly. Um, but I wonder about, you know, something like Asimov seems to be less less read now. I wonder if Asimov is sort of dropping out of the conversation a little bit. I think that seems to be the case. I mean, I think there's the possibility that he will he will be more remembered as a non-fiction writer than a fiction writer, which might seem to be an odd kind of a thing to have happen. But I think it's possible. Um, it's because you know, I mean, twenty years ago, his reputation was sort of absolutely, seemed absolutely sort of locked in. You know, he was one of the big three in America, as far as I was aware. I, I, one, one of the things that I think has happened in talking to younger writers and talking to my own students is um, that Asimov is um, well, his, his prose is, is transparent; it's undistinguished. He used the word transparent. He, did, he thought the narrative voice should be invisible. But the other thing which was pointed out to me more than once when I tried to teach the foundation stories uh, is that nothing really happens in them. Uh, there are a series, a long series of stories and novellas about conversations discussing things that have happened and discussing things that might happen, and then all the actual action is off stage. So that was like a template for thinking about future societies for many of us. But if you go back and look at the stories as stories, um, they're really extended conversations. In grey rooms, usually, aren't they? In grey rooms, yes. <laughs> Do you think there's also an issue with, and it seems to be very much a thing within the socio-political side of the science fiction community, a, a feeling that either the attitudes or behaviours of the authors at some point in the past impacts on people's willingness to engage with them as creators? Well, uh, the first time, I mean, we, you know, the, the elephant in the room is Asimov, I suppose, because he was, you know, a notorious um, womanizer, mm. as far as I'm aware. And that, I mean, there's, there's no way that that doesn't impact on his reputation now. It's very hard to pick up an Asimov novel without, you know, I mean, I'll give some of those stories, you know, firsthand, and they're, they're horrendous. Um, and yeah, they, it certainly it's injurious to a writer's reputation. Whether it should be, I don't know, but it, it certainly is. We can make, you know, we can excuse some things, but then you know, there's a sort of toll. Um, yes, I, I, yes. I guess you get to be historically wrong, but you don't get to be morally wrong in a sense or something. I mean, uh, you look at the the Lovecraft kind of feeling in the last sort of ten years, and particularly the last few years. Uh, Heinlein, I suppose, and I'm, I'm actually, I have to say, I'm going to be fascinated to read. Uh, Farah Mendelssohn's book about Heinlein, where she's actually gone back and read his work afresh and intelligently. I mean, fascinated to hear that because be really, yeah. if only because I wanted, I want to see how many of the canards about Heinlein have grown up over the last, well, since his death, uh, when analysed, if they actually stand up. With Asimov, it appears as though the what the 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 image that we have um, of a somewhat sexist 
womanizing kind of person, particularly one-on-one in real life, is a real issue. Um, and of course, with Clark, there are other issues as well, which also sort of linger on in the background, you know, that you'd hear about, and, you know, to, to what extent that impacts on his current reputation. Very true, very true, yes. Um, the Clark stuff is sort of, it, you know, it was something that was quite, quite um, prominent in the, in the sort of media about 10, 15 years ago, wasn't it? And it sort of... It sort of ripples away a little bit now, but uh, I would say, you know, that you just don't know what the future is going to hold in terms of the sort of um, posthumous reputation of the writer. No. Let me ask you this. Sorry, what were you going to say, Gary? No, I wasn't. Uh, go ahead. No, all I was going to ask you no, was to, sort of, to move away from the, the issue of sort of, if you like, these issues around the, the big four, how that f- actually either impacts on how they they move through the conversation, and whether to some degree they are disappearing. Uh, though I would say as an aside, obviously a book like the Medusa Chronicles is an act of keeping Clark himself actively in the conversation of science fiction. Yeah, we wrote it, we wrote it as a love letter to Clark as much as anything. Ah, you know. I'm curious if we drag ourselves back to Revenger for a second, and I've got a reason for it for asking this. What would be as horrible question? What would be the elevator pitch for Revenger? Uh, space pirates in the year ten million, I suppose. <laughs> or twenty million, actually. What? Yes. Well, in fact, would it be in fact teenage girls fight space pirates in the year twenty million? Yeah, teenage girls with crossbows fighting space pirates in <laughs> twenty million. <laughs> you realize that if we'd started this, half of the listeners to this podcast would have run off and bought a copy already. Uh, yeah, the other half would be running a mile away from it by now, wouldn't they? <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I, I look at sort of the people that I know, and they would be vastly motivated by that description, which is part okay. of the reason that I wanted to ask. Pull, pull the copies. Change the cover copy now. <laughs> well, we've got to write up how we're going to describe it. So, Gary, that when you send me the words to describe the, ep- the episode is what you should use. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we, we, I, I, I just... Uh, to be honest, I've just drafted my review of the novel, and I thought it was a lot of fun, and so it's uh, it, it, it's no surprise when that comes out. But it is it is 10 million years in the future, and there's a point at which that gives you license to do anything you want. If you want to have people talk like 18th century pirates 10 million years from now, who is the reader to question that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But you have you have some wonderful characters in it. A really, really uh, vicious, unpleasant villain, um, and pretty much uh, uh, this this el- this elaborate, wonderful solar system, which uh, which is it, it, even even though, as I mentioned earlier, and it may not have been one of your central ideas in the novel, made me rethink the nature of space opera because, as you mentioned, space opera had made us look at the solar system and our tiny solar system as being essentially the suburbs of New York and we had to get out of it. And this novel made me realize, no, it's really, really much larger than, than old science fiction made it seem. Yeah, I, I always think there's sort of two opposed um, prerogatives in, in space opera, if you like. One is the, the, the sort of need to make space as big as possible, you know, huge and mm-hmm. And you have something like, um, I suppose that's a sort of um, Kubrickian view or something like that, where, where you know, distant 
solar systems are, are very, very remote. And then you have a sort of Star Wars approach where the distance almost doesn't matter because everything's only sort of six hours away. But you yeah. have a sense of an, an enormous, teeming, complex, multifaceted galaxy. And, so, you know, those two things are always going to be in some kind of tension in, in, in science fiction. Right. So you kind of exactly. go, uh, I guess I wanted to go, go more for the sort of teeming, uh, clotted, um, ancient, um, you know, um, populous galaxy, if you like, but squeeze it into one solar system, which I could, yeah. I could never do in, within the framework of, um, say, the Revelation Space Universe or something like that. It just, you know, the mechanics just don't, don't work that way. Right. It seems to me that William Gibson, particularly, but William Gibson and the cyberpunks have had a an enormous influence on the world that we live in, in many ways. There are people who read the cyberpunk of the mid-1980s and seem to want to make it real. Is there, if you like, a challenge on the other side of science fiction, the, the space opera moving out into the solar system and possibly beyond, living off this planet group of writers to similarly inspire the world to try and make that a future that could happen? I was doing an interview with someone yesterday, and they were saying, they were asking me, what, what was the social role of a science fiction writer, you know, and I said, nothing, absolutely nothing, you know, we're, um, you know, absolutely ignore, ignore anyone who ever says they're a sort of seer or a guru or has, uh, you know, claims to be capable of inspiring things. And I've, I've always, you know, rebelled strongly against that, that, that mantle, if you like. Um, I mean, it's funny because I came from the, I mean, the whole reason I'm into science fiction was because of that cyberpunk. A, you know, early mid eighties boom. That's what really pushed my buttons as a writer and a reader. Um, so I'm coming, probably coming to space opera the wrong way around. I'm sort of gravitating to it via Gibson and Sterling. And because despite all the foregoing about talking about Clark, I sort of fell out of love with science fiction in the eighties, the early eighties. And then I sort of came back to it via, via Interzone and the, you know, the early Gibson stories they covered and, um, the interviews they had about um, the cyberpunks, and that that really blew my mind. And I started reading, um, you know, I read Sterling's early novels, and I read Neuromancer, um, and I read Richard Cadry's books and John Shirley's books, and and Pat Cadigan, and all, all all the cyberpunks. And that's the stuff that really switched on science fiction for me, made it seem exciting and vibrant, and a form I wanted to engage with. Um, but I, so I sort of, in a way, ended up. At the sort of space opera pole of it, but I think I kind of bring. I like to think I've come come with the full set of sort of cyberpunk um, tools, if you like, as as a writer um, in in my toolkit. Um, so it's a sort of I don't know. What, was that an answer to the question? Well, I don't know. I, it's, 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 just in terms uh, of um, revenge or alone, there's a wonderful scene at the beginning in something called Neural Alley. And I, reading that, I thought, okay, this is this is pure cyberpunk here. This is this is almost uh, this is almost Blade Runner. Yeah, I, I, I'm grateful for a very kind review of the book by Joanne Harris, and she said the whole thing has a Blade Runner color palette. And I said, well, does it? And then, oh, yeah, it does actually. I think about it, it does, and it was spot on. It was a spot on observation. Um, yeah, so yeah, indeed, that's a very um, cyberpunkian touch at the start of the book there yeah yeah um i mean I, I i mean for me two of the sort of touchstone books that kind of kind of on the fringe of the space opera big new hardest f boom if you like um one of them was sterling schismatrix which came directly out of the cyberpunk boom uh-huh. and the other one was a book, a book that has never had that much attention but for me it was quite an important book when it came out was 
Swanwick's vacuum flowers. And I know Swanwick was on the, you know, there was the, the humanist cyberpunk divide that people talk about now, but I wasn't really aware of that at the time, right? For me, it was just a whole, whole new wave of new science fiction writers to get into. And Swanwick's book and Sterling's book and a few others that came out to, you know, more or less around the same time, sort of the mid to late eighties. For me, that, that was, they sort of crystallized everything that was great and exciting about space opera. And, you know, even though they weren't, they, they might well be set entirely in the solar system. But they were pushing all the right buttons for me. They, you know, right. it felt vibrant and exciting and full of sort of dangerous stuff and it's, you know, cool gadgets and, and, you know, nice inventions. So that, in a way, that's where I'm coming from, I, th- I think, is from that, that sort of wave of, sort of little mini wave of space opera infused cyberpunk or whatever you want to call it that, that sort of um, exploded at the end of the 80s. Mm-hmm. It is interesting. I think that the eighties are un- undermined or underappreciated in terms of their influence on the current day. I was at a panel of you know, a few weeks ago at Worldcon about the uh, the short fiction of the nineteen eighties and the impact that it had. And it seems similarly there are you know the that string. I mean, you're talking about Vacuum Flowers, which was what Swanwick's second novel. Yeah. But nonetheless, you know, very much an, a, a, a classic 80s novel. I mean, Cadigan, a classic 80s writer, particularly with something like, uh, goes blank. Great novel. F- uh, uh, what was a major novel? Mm. Which? Time oh, players. Yeah. Not time players. I've got, oh, I've gone blank. Mind players, isn't it? Yeah. But, but nonetheless, of that period, do you think that, that people, that, you know, that, we don't appreciate the impact of that period enough at the moment? Well, it's probably cyclical, because I think the cyberpunks, I mean, this, this is a, this very sort of controversial editorial that Sterling wrote for one of the uh, anthologies, where it's perceived that he sort of um, basically brushed all of 70s science fiction aside, and, and quite rightly, that got up a lot of people's noses. Because if, if you look at some of the sort of most strong feminist voices came through science fiction in the 70s, and the cyberpunks were sort of saying all that stuff doesn't matter. It's boring and political and it's not, you know, it's not full of, um, you know, keyboards and, <laughs> and, and, and and things like that. So I think it's just cyclical. We're going through a phase now where maybe the, maybe the science fiction of the eighties isn't as well regarded as it was a decade or so ago. But it, you know, that, that window will shift and next will be sort of the SF of the nineties that gets a bit underappreciated. You know, it's just an, an ever-moving, um, you know, focus, I think. We talked, when we last spoke on the podcast, about the sort of challenges facing a writer to find things that are timely, that are inspirational. And, you know, back at that point, climate change was very much an, a, in its early precursor stages of influence contemporary science fiction. Do you think the challenge of finding things to write about have changed, uh, about keeping things like... Uh, moving out of the solar system. I mean, Gary talked about Stan Robinson's Aurora arguing against the possibility of starflight, basically, or interstellar co- uh, colonization. Do you think it, it's a harder time? Do you think there are different things that are inspiring us now than there were half a decade ago? No, I think it's it, it's the same game. It's always been it's always been just as hard and just as just as easy. You know, it, it just doesn't change. I mean, I was thinking about Aurora, thinking like you know, like, much as I huge admiration for Stan. There's a book that's calling for a ripoff, isn't it? It's called, you know, in, in a decade or two, we'll get the counter aurora from somewhere. Someone will come up with a sort of counter set of assumptions and ideas and make a sort of, you know, an authoritative case for why generation starships might work after all. And that's just, that's just the way science fiction works. It's this, 
um, very slow conversation drawn out across books and decades, and, and so it goes. And I, I don't, I mean, I, I never really bought into this notion that it's getting harder to write science fiction now because technological and social change is accelerating and there's just too much going on in the real world and we, we can't see through the fog because things are just happening too quickly. And I think, you know, you know, the world changed enormously between sort of 1900 and 1920, you know, and it didn't stop science fiction back then. You, you know, you went from sort of a horsepowered artillery to the aircraft to early experiments with television, you know, in 20 years. It, it's always been like this. I mean, it might occasionally get a bit slower or a bit faster, but the you know, technological change has been on a, um, you know, on a, on a, on an upward curve since about 1800, as far as I'm concerned. And that's why we have science fiction. So yeah. I think it, 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 for me, it's just as exciting as ever. You know. Let me ask you this because we are kind of getting towards the end of an hour, and this is something Gary particularly wants to touch on. No, uh, and that is, what's next? Well. Um, Revenger is just about to drop. It's just about to come out. It sounds terrible, doesn't it? It sounds like a Rihanna album. Revenge is out in a week, so I'm sort of, I mean, a lot of my, the next sort of month or so is sort of tied up in promotion with that, which is nice. And then um, Peter Hamilton and I are doing um, a, a, a sort of a joint book tour, which I'm really excited about. We've both got books coming out with different publishers different um, publicists, but we get on well, and we, we hatched up this plan that we could uh, uh, team up and go to sort of lots of exciting places like Nottingham and Leeds and Newcastle. And, you know, <laughs> without any irony, I'm really excited, because, I, you know, I'm really excited about going to sort of Nottingham and Leeds and Newcastle. I haven't been, I used to live in Newcastle, I haven't been there for years and years. That'd be really, really great fun. Uh, and then I'm about halfway through uh, a novel which is allegedly a sequel to the prefect. So it's a return to the Revelation Space Universe. Mm -hmm. ah. And within, within that universe, I kind of try to create a kind of microcosm um, where, where you have a kind of um, a, a police force that are patrolling or policing um, this semi-utopian state. So I wrote the prefect 10 years ago, and I've always threatened to return to it. And so I'm trying to deliver on that commitment now with a, with a sequel. But I don't have a title for it yet. And is that within uh, this sort of framework of writing 120,000 or 100,000 word novels? It it will be a shorter book than the prefect. It, I'm I'm sort of anticipating it will be about the same length as Revenger, about 140,000 words. So it'll be. I mean, I, I want to sort of take the economy and the and the the, the pace, if you like, of Revenger and sort of transplant it onto everything else I do from this point onwards. For you know, for, for a good few books, anyway. Mm. Well, we should look forward to that. But I guess we should say we're sort of over our hour. So we should probably stop and say thank you very much, Al, for making the time to talk to us. I feel it's like my pleasure. I feel Absolutely like if we, my if we stop now, we'll get a chance to talk again sometime soon. Mm -hmm. Gary, we are, as always, heading forward. This is episode 284. We've got 285 behind us. Hopefully, maybe one thing we'll get to do is, depending how the world turns, revisit this conversation in a little under 12 months in Helsinki. In Helsinki. Or... Thank you, guys. It's been great fun. Really appreciate it. Okay. And I should probably say, before right. we end up, that Revenger is out in the United Kingdom and you know Commonwealth Territories in a, a day or two, and will be coming out early in the new year, I think, in maybe February from Orbit in the United States. Yes, they're... they're, they're, they're supposed to get an electronic version out now 
Um, so the plan is that there'll be um, simultaneous electronic release in the States uh, on, on or around September 15th. And then the, the physical edition will come out in February. And then in the longer time scale, we're hoping to get my British and American editions to sort of line up, which they've never done in the past. So that's, that's part a good of idea. Sort of okay. yeah. Well, until such times, thank you very much again, Al. And thank Gar you, gentlemen. And Gary, we'll thank talk you. to you again next week. Talk again next week, absolutely. Thank you.